This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When someone comes up with an idea for a potential fix to a societal problem, Derek Oyang and his colleagues ask, does it work? Cities are just barely getting by, you know, getting the policy out the door and don't have the time to conceive of an actual trial step in which they learn whether it works or not. I'm Laura Wenis. San Francisco has a lot of problems to solve, and on this podcast, we have conversations with people who have ideas about how to fix things. But another part of problem solving is figuring out, do these ideas work? Things like whether putting calorie labels on fast food menus encourages better nutrition. It doesn't seem to. Or whether checklists improve health inspector effectiveness. They don't. This week, I'm talking with someone who brings governments and academia together to probe how effective certain solutions actually have been. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. It's kind of hard to categorize Derek Oyang. He studied architectural design and civil engineering at Stanford, but he didn't become, strictly speaking, an architect or engineer. I think the big turning point was actually related to a former guest on the podcast. In 2013, I was a speaker in TEDx Stanford, and I happened to be sitting next to Michael Tubbs at the ah. speaker's dinner. Just random chance. Michael Tubbs is the former mayor of Stockton who pioneered a guaranteed income program in that city. And the podcast Oyang's talking about is this one. Our episode with Tubbs came out on July 26th, 2022. And he invited me to come take a look and, and get to know Stockton. A year later, I finally took him up on that offer. And I remember walking through South Stockton with him and some community leaders and seeing all kinds of foreclosed homes, memorials to gun violence on multiple street corners, just hearing about the kinds of economic hardships and trauma that have been experienced in that community. And I think I had an epiphany standing in front of a particular boarded up home and realized that pretty much the entirety of my engineering education at Stanford could have nothing useful to provide to the family that was in this house, but had just been displaced. And I think I felt a deep kind of existential crisis there. These are complex problems, both in technical and emotional terms. San Francisco's ongoing struggles are no less thorny. Homelessness, housing, and crime are all difficult to engineer your way out of. I felt like there was this huge gap in the social sciences and the notion of public policy in my own education. And I felt like I need some time to fill that gap as well as develop some of the curricula that could help fill that gap for other students as well. So that basically turned to me, instead of going out into industry, getting miraculously hired back as a very young lecturer to develop project-based learning, where at least an important ingredient there ended up being, let's help students kind of go into the deep end of the pool and work directly with Michael Tubbs in South Stockton or with the city of San Jose or with the county of San Mateo on flood resilience and learn how many blind spots we may have from an engineering perspective but yet where a scientific method, a technical expertise can be valuable. Today, Oyang wears a few hats. He co-founded a nonprofit consultancy called City Systems, which looks for solutions to systemic city problems. And he's a research manager at Stanford's REG Lab, which stands for Regulation, Evaluation, and Governance. The lab creates what you might call symbiotic relationships between governments and academics. 
it's hard to solve problems and even harder to definitively assess outcomes of attempts to fix things. But that's what this lab works on. Governments don't usually have the resources to produce rigorous scientific evidence about whether different policies and programs actually work. So they get guidance on how to set up those experiments in the real world. The academics, by helping design and analyze those studies, get to publish science with real-world relevance and impact. The RAG Lab works with governments of all sizes, municipal as well as federal, on issues ranging from food safety to environmental compliance to health equity. So I think we're pretty unique at Stanford for believing in co-production of knowledge with partners. That's off of the kind of default of, you know, academic in the ivory tower with this theory of trickle-down science. So you can just publish in journals and magically decision makers will learn from that. (laughs) Um, But obviously for a long time that hasn't seemed to solve the problems we want to be solved. But I think it's about actually finding out how to implement that in practice. So we work, you know, on issues ranging from environmental compliance and mass adjudication at the federal and state levels down to public health response and how to form public-private partnerships at the city and county level. There's kind of standard concept of just the golden idea of the randomized control trial. And that hopefully is how we're thinking mostly about policy, that we want to see actual outcomes. And through the you know initial experiment, then we can gain some confidence that the full rollout of a policy or program will be successful. That's really hard to actually happen in the real world. Yes, with public policy, Um, yes. (laughs) um, Often cities are just barely getting by, you know, getting the policy out the door and don't have the time to conceive of an actual trial step in which they learn whether it works or not. The political incentives often don't value enough actually having a scientific rigor behind what you're doing. And then academics are not helping much either because often the theoretical work is just as valued in academia than showing that something worked in practice. I think a good example of just our approach has been COVID. So back in spring of 2020, we instantly shifted a lot of our priorities, which was sometimes climate change and and housing issues to, you know, we have an obvious immediate pandemic response. We ended up working really closely with the Santa Clara County Department of Public Health. We worked on a language matching process in which we would pair patients who needed Spanish-speaking abilities with Spanish-speaking contact tracers. They basically were randomly pairing patients with contact tracers. And so you would run into this very common problem of somebody who's a Spanish speaker not being paired with somebody who could speak Spanish on the contact tracing side. But nowadays with machine learning, with a lot of social science, you can do a pretty good prediction of just with somebody's first and last name and their address on the likelihood that they would need Spanish assistance. And it was about implementing a kind of algorithm to make that happen. So when COVID was at a a big peak, we were really implementing this special language team and we were finding that interviews were being completed much faster and they were much more likely to share contacts, which is the whole point of of contact tracing. And then a few months later, we could take the time to actually publish that in a leading journal, in which case then the research can hopefully be a kind of megaphone to other counties that may want to try something like this in the future. This kind of experiment seems like it always will pose an ethics question Mm -hmm. because it seems like there would be concerns about withholding an intervention that Mm -hmm. is probably going to be beneficial from the control group. Absolutely. So I think that's the core ethics question. And sometimes you simply cannot do that kind of science because it's just completely unethical to withhold that kind of treatment if it's life-saving. We got a little lucky here because of how unlucky we all were with COVID in that there were just not enough resources. Given we knew the total supply that was available, it was just a matter of being rigorous about how you allocate those resources. You can do it non-randomly or randomly. And there were many other cases like this as we were just trying to learn about 
a kind of contact tracing that included social service linkage, then it's not that we were withholding social services. We were using all that was available at the moment and just making sure we could learn the most from it scientifically. The Reg Lab conducted a similar study with door-to-door COVID testing, where a community member showed up at someone's home with a test in hand. The thinking was that this could yield a better understanding of cases and spread than making people go to testing hubs would. It didn't result in the same volume of tests, but it was much better at reaching under-tested and under-resourced groups. It's hard to craft scientific studies in real-world settings. Often, pilot programs that are meant to be a proof of concept don't prove much because the sample sizes are too small and not representative of a population. And you can't compare any city to any other city without trying to account for potential confounding variables. This is something Oyang's lab deals with a lot. But I also wanted to know about the optics factor. Oyang is quick to admit that academia is slow, and there's a lot of resistance to the idea of analyzing interventions or forming task forces to study an issue. Well, yeah, death by a thousand committees is a whole other <laughs> impediment to decision making. Uh-huh. But I think the, the real flaw of academia is often that they take too much time. Mm. I think academia is pretty much the one institution in society that has the luxury of time. And meanwhile, decision makers and communities that are affected by the decisions have to make judgment calls on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge gap there. And I think basically the kind of direction we're trying to take Stanford and research groups at Stanford is to really close that gap. What else can this be applied to? I mean, we just talked about COVID. There, there was the advantage in some ways of an emergency response. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people throw around the idea of we should treat homelessness like a public health emergency, like a crisis, like a natural disaster, so that we mount that same response. Would that work? Mm -hmm. I think housing for sure is close. Housing and affordable housing and homelessness as the you know worst symptom of that are closer to, say, the kind of agility we were able to achieve in pandemic response. But I think the funding is not there mm. because even to do experiments, you need potentially Money. say we're exploring a housing first solution. We're exploring a particular kind of you know social service to be applied. There still is just a lot of actual infrastructure to build there. And I think with the pandemic, we got pretty lucky because a lot of that money was flowing in in the true emergency sense. So, yeah, like I think you're right. Maybe the political impetus would change some of that calculus. But then you still just have physical space questions like where in San Francisco could you pilot certain types of ideas? So, yeah, that gets to the really, really murky problem of housing supply. I haven't had the ability to work specifically in that domain yet, but I've huh? got colleagues in the university who are working on Bay Area housing issues. And some of it is in the early stages of requiring data. And that could be itself a first barrier for cities to really understand you know, what the state of homelessness is and, totally. and different kinds of, of options. I do think that housing adds the trickiness of the politics. Where probably a lot of the reasons it's a you know longstanding intractable problem is that we don't actually agree on exactly what we want across you know demographic groups, across populations, across cities. And so I see it a little bit as a systems thinking issue. And there are very important research questions to be answered there. But I actually feel like in housing we often know technically what the solution looks like, but how to achieve that politically and you know in a social science kind of perspective is I think a lot trickier. That's a familiar challenge in San Francisco, where there are often political obstacles to certain solutions being implemented, or priorities just aren't aligned among all stakeholders. I asked Oyang to talk about examples of that, where he's seen attempts at fixes break down. I can reflect on a few different ways that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, There there are many. Mm -hmm. I think one is that you might be working at the wrong scale. I think a, a big aspect of 
kind of understanding the mess of systems is that when you try to solve a problem in one place, you might just be moving that problem somewhere else. Mm. So I think that tends to happen when you're maybe a little bit too on the ground level with trying to address an issue. And what you really need to do is go upstream of that problem or to a, a higher scale. In the Silicon Valley in particular, I think there's a lot of danger to the purely technocratic solution. Say mm. um, more about that. <laughs> I think it's very easy to actually solve a lot of problems if the solution is a particular building or a particular district in a neighborhood, or it's a particular kind of product that can be put out in the world. And usually the technology, the science is there, but that comes at the cost of who can afford that solution. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's very easy for the engineering mindset to get really excited about, oh, let's actually build this thing. And maybe not realize that what that means is that only certain people can purchase that product or that service or live in the places that have those amenities. And that comes at the cost of displacement. And I worry about that. Here's a solution he's particularly interested in. Modular building blocks to turn garages into apartments. I'm very passionate about ADUs. I think they're underrated. That and how he'd fix San Francisco's system for approving new housing is coming up after a break. Before we go, a reminder that we want to hear from you. We'd like you to have a voice on this podcast, too. Do you have a solution you want this city to pursue? Do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send a voice memo or an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Derek Oyang is the research manager at a Stanford lab studying regulation and governance and co-founded a nonprofit consultancy called City Systems. One of his projects for City Systems involves trying to bring down the cost of constructing accessory dwelling units, often called ADUs. You might know them as granny flats or in-law units. A few years ago, ADUs were a hot topic in San Francisco after legislation was passed allowing them to be built more easily. I'm very passionate about ADUs. I think they're underrated. Oh, um, tell me why. <laughs> well, first, from a pure stats perspective, look this up. In the last five years, there have been about 26,000 ADUs completed in the state. Okay. So um, is that a lot? That's only 8% of all new housing units. Okay. That's more than I expected. Yeah. One in 12 new buildings is actually a granny flat style thing. And that could be a unit in the backyard. That can be a converted garage. That can be some other kind of internal conversion. But these are typically single family properties. Mm -hmm. Despite whether you might feel that's a low number, I still think ADUs are underrated because, you know, they can't solve every housing problem. But there are particular kinds of housing problems that I think ADUs are the best or just, you know, the only solution. And that's where I think we want to lean into specifically how to make ADUs easier, more affordable to build in, in California. Not just more affordable. Oyang describes ADUs as vehicles of change to transform suburbia, making it denser and in urban areas to more efficiently use space. After all, one of the challenges with San Francisco's state-mandated goal to build 82,000 units in the next 10 years is where to put them. In San Francisco, there are about 100,000 owner-occupied single-family homes. Okay. And one in five of them only have one individual living in them. Wow. 
So at least I think folks can agree that's probably space that could be better utilized. <laughs> I think of ADUs in a very simple sense as a kind of slack in that space. You can have a backyard unit that becomes the place where the one individual ends up moving to, and that frees up the valuable real estate of the main home. You can divide up the existing home and, and rent that out. And so these are, I think, some of the only options that might be accessible to, to many individuals, considering a way to deal with that underutilization of space. And taking kind of the system's perspective, if that starts to happen, then you can take places that are essentially single family zoned. And over time, those can become 10% more dense, 20% more dense, at most with ADU, something like 100% more dense. And um, that could be incremental, but I think that can start to, at the street and block level, create capacity for walkable amenities like corner grocery stores and parks and increase the ability for public services like transport to be sustained, buses and trains. And then those all in turn can attract more residents. And you might also get, as a side benefit, diversity because the kinds of folks who are moving into just naturally more affordable housing stock might look a little bit different than folks who have tended to live in those suburban environments. And that could really just start to build a whole different kind of culture and political shift as well. I think a way that often the ADU topic is a little bit too narrowly defined is that you're missing the equity dimension. So, you know, we can move from San Francisco to, say, East Palo Alto, where I've spent a lot of my time. Mm -hmm. And there, ADUs can actually serve a whole different purpose. So, you know, in East Palo Alto, you have a very different median income. You will tend to actually have overcrowding instead of undercrowding. Mm -hmm. And so the addition of an extra space in the garage or in the backyard could actually just be a, like, immediate health issue that you're trying to alleviate, not a housing issue per se. So, like, multi-generational households have a little bit more room to spread out. Exactly. And then you have potentially a lot of low-income homeowners who are struggling to have economic mobility. And that could be because they really need an extra cash source. And then you could take advantage of a property you've maybe owned for a long time and build a lot more wealth out of it. So I see those as being pretty different dynamics. And in both cases, whether you're helping the homeowner or you're helping a prospective renter in a place like East Palo Alto, I think that is more about unlocking economic opportunity. Right now, he says research shows a single ADU costs about $175,000 to build. Inflation is only driving that up. Regulation is another factor. Even though state law changed to pave the way for more ADUs, that didn't go off without a hitch. What happened is basically a lot of small cities were like drinking for the fire hose <laughs> in terms of all the sudden changes they needed to be able to deal with, as well as the downstream consequences. You know, yeah. more ADUs means more parking needs, more traffic, more services required in infrastructure. So mm -hmm. a lot of those are legitimate issues and cities really were left scrambling to catch up. Mm -hmm. And I think that was actually maybe a lesson to learn where the fire hose approach to top-down state law sometimes is exactly what you need. But then if you create that period of time in which applicants for ADUs are lining up and queuing up and hoping to get that ADU done, and then they're just coming into more conflict with all the ways that a local city government hasn't quite gotten their act together yet, doesn't have the staff resources to be able to handle that influx. He would know. One of his own projects, not affiliated with Stanford, is developing a prefab ADU building kit, and a demonstration unit was just completed. The goal is to create low-cost building blocks for all the things you would need to turn a garage into an apartment bathroom, kitchen, and dividing walls. And bingo, you've got a studio apartment. And if we could simplify the notion of garage conversions as kind of prepare the garage space itself, then just plug in these mass manufactured pieces that all kinds of contractors know how to build and know how to install, I would hope that that unlocks even more demand because it's much easier to conceive of that project. 
and hopefully just through economies of scale, we can get those costs down for what really should be some of the cheapest housing we can imagine. Oyang got a grant to try this out in 2021. He's created an 8 by 10 foot L-shaped module for a kitchen and bathroom. It comes in eight prefabricated pieces that fit into the corner of a typical garage. He's aiming to get the cost for consumers down to less than $100,000. Permitting for the prototype in North Fair Oaks took about a year. Then actual construction took about six months, which he hopes will go faster once everything is worked out and building an in-law unit becomes kind of like putting together a Lego set or a kitchen from Ikea. A year to get permits seems pretty short to me, given that in San Francisco, it can take several years to get a new building, even if it's a small one, approved and pull all the permits. The city has multiple layers of discretionary review powers, which developers say gets in the way of housing production. Not to mention long hearings where residents can weigh in with objections to a proposal. I asked Ouyang, who works with city governments and has now worked on a prototype housing model as well, how he would fix San Francisco's process. I feel like the best bang for your buck is to think about the, the design of public review and community input into housing in San Francisco. I think this has been covered a bit in past podcasts. Check out our July 19th episode with Robert Fruchtman, a volunteer with a local YIMBY group who reads complicated housing bills and tweets dispatches from obscure hearings. Fruchtman talked with me about how exclusive these hearings can actually be. Who has the time and money to take off in the middle of the workday to sit in line for three hours and give two minutes of testimony about a development? While I'm very interested in participatory processes and inclusion into these decisions, there's often just a question of whether the actual tools we've designed are effective to that regard. And I tend to lean more towards this idea of surveys. I know there have been lots of recent survey efforts, but you know those at least can bring in a scientific method to get to what the true pulse of the neighborhood is, as opposed to just who has the privilege and resources to attend and be loud in particular sessions, or exactly what interests are behind the elected representatives we have. Mm-hmm. And then what about on the just purely administrative end? For the ADU application that I experienced, just as simple of a thing as, as having to submit exactly the same drawing set to multiple people, when you would have expected the process to involve handing off the same drawing set, and just the fact that they wouldn't even trust a fellow authority to give them the correct files is evidence of a kind of cultural and just you know institutional design that needs updating there. But I think often it's just that the actual decision-making of organizational design is not at the level of people who are bear the brunt of the yeah. challenges. And, and I think it's fair to say that plenty of people who work in government are equally frustrated by feeling like they can't actually change the system. Mm-hmm. So I think we definitely need to see more technology applied to government. And I think that takes building more public-private partnerships. But we have to also be mindful of when the introduction of technology in government can lead to indirect consequences. If that technology is brought in as a black box, if it's really being rammed in because of a kind of venture capital mindset of just you know, building revenue for new Silicon Valley-ish ideas, that's probably not fully accounting for public benefit as well. Why didn't you go into working for government? Why do this instead? <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out entirely. Okay. Um, I think I've felt very humble about how much I actually know and if I would be ready for the responsibilities that are part of actually being a public servant. I basically think that the most hardworking and tireless and smart people I know are in government. They're just often trapped in systems that are really, really tough to address. 
And I think as I'm trying to build a more diverse set of skills and understandings, it maybe helps to just be a little more nimble and be able to work on many different projects at the same time. That could also just be that you know, I, I get distracted easily and like to have many things I'm working on. Um, but to have a little bit more of that diversity in my experience at, at least at my age, just a 30 year old trying to learn how this works is kind of where I'm at right now, but I wouldn't rule out public service in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. Email us at sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City, Supervisor Myrna Melgar comes to the studio for lunch and to talk about city issues. Our inaugural episode of a new series chatting with each supervisor, Soup with the Soups, next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.